We're currently living in the age of artificial intelligence and machine learning. Everywhere we go, computerized algorithms and large datasets are being used to automate and inform consequential decisions about us. From the route we take to work, to the price we pay for a loan, to the chances that we're hired for that job or accepted to that university. But the growing importance of algorithms in our daily lives is not without ethical risk. How can we be sure that a credit approval or hiring algorithm is making fair decisions? And how do we prevent datafied, algorithmic decision-making from eroding our privacy? These questions and more are at the heart of The Ethical Algorithm, an excellent and very accessible new book by Aaron Roth and Michael Kearns, professors of computer science at the University of Pennsylvania. In it, they argue that a key part of the solution is to embed our core ethical values directly into the design of algorithms themselves. You're listening to Technology in Prose. I'm Nikita Agarwal, and this week I'm joined by Aaron Roth to chat about his new book and the science of designing ethical algorithms. Aaron, welcome to Technology in Prose. Thanks for having me. So the ethical algorithm, which you co-authored with Michael Kearns, um, is all about the science of ethical algorithm design. I wondered if we could begin by defining the boundaries of your project. What is the ethical design of algorithms about? And equally importantly, what is it not about? Uh, great question. So we make some effort in the book to you know, carefully and, and rather narrowly scope what our book is about and, and talk about what it's not about. And you know, the, the things we talk about in the book are things like privacy and, and fairness. But of course, when you talk about something like fairness, this is, you know, first of all, it's a big word. It means many things. And it is generally a property of what I would call a you know, socio-technical system in, in that what matters is not just the, you know, individual algorithmic components, which might be mediating some marketplace, for example, like Uber or, or, you know, Google AdWords, but of course, you know, all of the, all of the human beings who are actually using these platforms and making decisions. Uh, nevertheless, what our book focuses on is, is the technical component. And I, I, you know, let me give you the brief pitch for why, even though that's not the whole problem, it's something that is important to focus on. So, you know, it, it's not a new thing that you can use tools and artifacts of technology to hurt people, right? One, one thing we talk about in the very first chapter is, is the difference, you know, between an algorithm and a, and a hammer. So, so our, our book is called like the ethical algorithm and it's about embedding ethical design principles into algorithms. And, you know, an initial reaction you might have is why does that make any more sense than to talk about, you know, like ethical design principles for hammers, right? Even though I, you know, I, I could use a hammer for something bad as an instrument of violence, that's not like the fault of the hammer. It's not any problem with the design of the hammer. Um, and more importantly, we sort of have the political and legal infrastructure to deal with violence by hammer. You know, we, we send people to jail if they, if they hit people with hammers. And that works because there's a direct line of intentionality between the person wielding the hammer and the harm they ultimately cause with the hammer. But for algorithms, and, and we, I say algorithm informally, but what we talk about in the book is really more properly called a model. So the kind of thing that comes out of the machine learning pipeline. Um, 
things are quite a bit more complex. And in particular, many of the instances of, say, algorithmic discrimination that we have um, seen in the wild, and there's been lots of them now, right? they're not typically the result of um, you know, malintent on the part of the algorithm designer. It's, it's not that someone you know, sat out to design you know, like a sexist credit approval algorithm or something. It's that they didn't, you know, it's that these things were the unanticipated side effects of um, the, the fundamental process of machine learning, which is sort of blind optimization of a, of a narrow objective function, usually some proxy for classification accuracy. And the result is that um, unlike, you know, like unethical use of hammers, um, it isn't sufficient, it's necessary, but not sufficient to have ethical people in charge of deploying algorithms. And, you know, it's also not sufficient to sort of just write regulation that says, you know, like don't deploy sexist algorithms because these things are sort of unintentional side effects of the standard machine learning pipeline. We actually need to think carefully about how we can go about using that pipeline and designing algorithms that do not have, you know, do not have discriminatory properties or privacy violating properties um, that we want to avoid. So, so, you know, first, you know, the problem we talk about is, you know, somewhat narrowly scoped. It's, you know, generally focused on the algorithms. But, but second, I, I want to emphasize that it's a sort of key part, I think, of eliminating problematic behaviors in algorithms and, you know, also cannot be ignored, um, you know, and, and it's an important part of the conversation. Right. So just as um, kind of laws are necessary, but not sufficient, algorithmic, ethical algorithmic design is necessary, but not sufficient. And we kind of need both. Right. Absolutely. OK, so let's you know, let's talk about some of the ethical harms that you um, discussed in the book. And you really focus on two areas, privacy and fairness. So let's let's go through each of these in turn. So on privacy, you know, of course, this era of data driven algorithmic decision-making that we're living in um, has raised a lot of concerns about harms to our privacy and the loss of privacy, right? Um, how can algorithms be designed to better protect our privacy? Yeah, so, so the first thing to realize is that there's a problem at all because, you know, you might sort of think, okay, well, um, if I'm aggregating information, you know, training a machine learning classifier and using it, you know, I'm not, I'm not like, you know, releasing the browsing records, say, of any particular person. So maybe there's no problem with aggregates or, you know, maybe even if I do want to release a data set publicly, I can, you know, solve, I don't have to worry about privacy if I remove people's names. And these are, um, you know, natural things to think. And, and some of them are even enshrined in law. You know, lots of privacy regulation is focused on trying to de-identify data by removing names. And the first thing to realize is that, you know, sort of naive solutions like that sort of are fundamentally broken and privacy is really a hard problem. But, but then sort of the um, challenging part and, and, and sort of the exemplar of this research agenda that we sort of advocate for is to figure out exactly what you mean by privacy. And, and this is something we sort of, you know, try to you know, beat the drum about you know, throughout the book that it's easy to talk in English about fairness and privacy, but but to actually come up with sort of actionable technical solutions, you have to be mathematically precise about what you mean by these things. And in the case of privacy, there's been some very um, 
interesting work and success in this area. And there's this notion of differential privacy, which has a very appealing definition. It basically basically says that, you know, if you imagine um, a hypothetical world in which whoever is conducting the data analysis, uh, you know, just never had access to your data at all, and you're happy with your privacy in that hypothetical world, since after all, the data analyst never had your data, then you should also be happy with a differentially private data analysis because what differential privacy promises is there's no reliable way, no statistical test that can distinguish these two worlds, the one world in which your data is used and, and the one world in which it's not. And once you have a definition like that, a mathematical um, condition that, that you sort of, you know, agree in many cases conforms with what you kind of meant with the word privacy, then you can start thinking about solutions and in particular what kinds of data analyses you can and, and what kinds of data analyses you cannot conduct with, with this kind of uh, guarantee. So differential privacy is kind of like a stronger guarantee of privacy than like anonymization or de-identification. I would say, you know, even more than that, like differential privacy is a guarantee of privacy. Things like de-identification um, are, are trying to get at privacy without like bothering to specify what they mean by privacy. There's there's sort of like band-aids that are attempting to foil some particular, you know, naive attack. And the reason we've seen these definitions or you know, these approaches sort of um, repeatedly um, be broken over the years is because, you know, because they don't even try to say what privacy is, they're sort of implicitly trying to foil some particular you know, attack they're worried about. They are vulnerable to you know, more clever people coming around thinking about something else you might be able to do to re-identify people, for example. Maybe there's some public data set out there that has names attached that you could try to cross-reference data points with. Um, differential privacy sort of circumvents this cat and mouse game that had been going on for many years between you know, people trying to anonymize data and people trying to attack it um, by, by sort of taking a stand on, on what exactly privacy is and, and then sort of uh, doing things that that provably fulfill that promise. There are still costs to differential privacy, though, right? So, um, and, and I think you write in the book that you know, privacy doesn't come for free. Um, what are some of the costs and trade-offs of designing for privacy and particularly differential privacy? Yes, yeah, so there are costs um, to privacy and there are costs to sort of just about any constraint you want to put on an algorithm. And this is another theme of the book, which is trade-offs. Um, and I want to point out that these costs are not only for differential privacy, but for sort of any reasonable notion of privacy. So there was this um, very nice mathematical result from 2002 by uh, Kobinisim and Irit Dinur, and it's sort of come to be known as the fundamental law of information recovery. And, uh, you know, glossing over some of the mathematical particularities, what it sort of says is that if you give me sufficiently many statistics about your data set that are sufficiently accurate, then from that noisy information, I can go and, you know, do some computation and reconstruct the entire data set. Okay, like record by record. And so what that tells you is that if you want any non-trivial kind of privacy, anything that promises, you know, even that someone cannot recover the entire data set verbatim, 
you are going to have to pay for that in some loss of accuracy, either by limiting the number of questions you can ask to the data set or by tolerating, you know, error, sometimes substantial amounts of error. And differential privacy provides a way to sort of navigate that trade-off. So differential privacy has a, you know, quantitative knob, you know, you can, it's, it's called epsilon, but, you know, it's, you think of it as some way to sort of dial up and dial down the amount of privacy, right? It, it sort of controls how hard it is to tell apart this um, idealized world in which your data is not there and the real world in which your data is. And as you dial it towards more privacy and it becomes harder and harder to tell if your data was used in the analysis, the way you will have to pay for that is in one of two ways. Either you will have to tolerate more error in your analyses, or you will have to gather more data. Okay, so, so it's sort of, you should think about it as a demand on data, just as you already have, you know, in, in machine learning and, and data analysis, just from the point of view of accuracy, right? If I want to, you know, if I want to train a classifier, I want that classifier to be accurate, not just on my, you know, training data, but on like new data I haven't seen before. That's the whole point. And the more complicated my classifier, like if I'm, you know, training a deep neural network, the more data I need. And so in general, in data analysis, there's this, you know, data analysis is data hungry. There's this demand for data and asking for privacy on top of that makes it even more data hungry. So sort of, I think the right way to think about it is, you know, for, for any statistical analysis that you could do with data in the first place, such that the analysis would generalize to new data that you haven't seen before from the same distribution, you know, by and large, you know, with some asterisks and caveats, you can generally do that kind of analysis subject to differential privacy protections as well, but you'll need more data than you would have needed without privacy. I mean, so it sounds like a really compelling technique, um, but as you point out, it requires more data. And I'm wondering whether that limits the kinds of entities that, you know, who could really use this. Um, they need to have a lot of data and that that's expensive um, and hard to get. For sure. And, and so, if you, you know, it's not an accident that if you look at the entities that have sort of been at the forefront of adopting and deploying differential privacy, they're entities with lots of data. So, so the first two sort of, I think, big adopters were Google for the Chrome web browser and uh, Apple for data collection uh, with their with their you know iPads and iPhones you know it's uh, built into to the iOS operating system and you know they both have billions of users and and, and that's not an accident you know, the other big use case is um, the United States Census the 2020 Census will release all of its statistical products subject to differential privacy and they've also got a big data set. They collect information from every, you know, American. And, you know, that's a pretty big data set. It's, you know, it's, it's not as big as, um, you know, what, what Apple and, and Google have. And, and even with, you know, data from 300 million Americans, um, implementing differential privacy, which comes with measurable trade-offs, has not been without controversy there. You know, the downstream data users, in particular, um, the community of demographers has been um actively opposed to the to the adoption of, of rigorous privacy technologies because of not entirely unfounded concerns that it will degrade the access that they have to data so you know first of all even for relatively big entities these trade-offs are real right yeah you know, these things really do not come for free they come with trade-offs that have to be made 
as serious policy decisions. Like we need to think about as a society, how much we relatively value privacy compared to making, you know, uh, large data sets publicly available. And these trade-offs only become more severe um, as, as the data becomes smaller. And so I think it's, you know, a relatively open question at the moment, whether um, people who deal with small data are going to be able to make use of differential privacy as, as like an actual useful technology. But let me mention uh, one, I think, potential use case that hasn't really been fully realized yet, but in which privacy technologies actually have the power to, or the potential at least, to you know maybe unleash the power of small data. And there is the following. So there's a bunch of examples. I think medical data is maybe a good one, where in principle there's a lot of data out there, right? Like you know, many people in the world have medical records somewhere, but it's kind of siloed away. So maybe you know each hospital has records for their patients, and maybe you know there just aren't for that many patients that have you know certain diseases at each hospital, and so it's very difficult to do sort of. Um, statistically powerful studies uh, at sort of the hospital level. And so what you'd really like is to be able to aggregate data across many hospitals, across a country, across the world. But because of privacy concerns, it's you know hard or you know impossible to do so. And one thing you might hope might come from privacy technologies, including differential privacy, but also uh, sort of cryptographic techniques, is that we might be able to um, mitigate the privacy concerns enough that it becomes possible to combine these data sets, sort of, you know, tear down the individual silos and thereby actually get more accurate analyses. So, so yeah, when I say that privacy comes with trade-offs and the more privacy you want, the less accuracy you have, that's sort of in a static setting. If adding privacy doesn't change what data you have available to you. But I think there's some, some promising settings where adding privacy protections actually gets you access or at least potential access to more data. And there it can really be a win-win. What about uh, solutions like synthetic data? You, you talk in the book about um, the use of GANs to generate data. Um, is that promising in your, in your opinion? Um, does, it, does it have kind of room for growth? Yeah, synthetic data is very interesting. And it's you know, something I've been personally interested in for a long time since my PhD thesis. Um, you know, just saying like the word synthetic data on its own, like, of course, doesn't promise anything when it comes to privacy, you know, like if you just run your GAN and, and get some synthetic pictures of faces or something, you know, there's no guarantee that, you know, something very similar to my face isn't, you know, embedded in there. But um, generating synthetic data is something that we've known for a long time is possible to do with the protections of differential privacy. Okay, so differential privacy doesn't refer to a particular algorithm. It's like a promise. And it makes perfect sense to talk about um, differentially private algorithms that generate synthetic data. And, you know, we know in we've known for a long time in principle that it's possible to generate synthetic data sets that are consistent with, you know, your original private data set on a, a tremendously large number of statistics and machine learning tasks. Um, I say it's sort of at the research frontier at the moment to actually make these things that we know are possible in principle actually practical. But um, there's 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 been you know promising movement in that direction in the last couple of years, and, and so I sort of optimistically hope that um, in you know the next five years, say this becomes a actually useful technology where a you know a bank or a hospital or a you know um, 
district attorney's office or whatever can take their highly sensitive data sets for which they might not have lots of in-house data science expertise and make differentially private synthetic versions of those public um, that, that'll sort of, you know, hopefully um, allow more sophisticated data analysis to be brought to bear without, um, you know, you know, while still having strong guarantees of individual privacy. Yeah, it's a really interesting space to watch. Um, so I wondered if we could turn to the fairness implications of algorithms and algorithmic decision making. Um, I mean, you know, fairness is, of course, a multifaceted concept. It can mean many different things to many different people in different contexts. So, so my first question to you is, you know, how can we even start to think about precisely defining and quantifying fairness in a way that can be, you know, encoded into the design of algorithms and, and the models built with them? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and let me start at the offset by saying, you know, unlike in the field of privacy, where I think differential privacy has been a largely successful definition that is sort of widely agreed upon to, at least in many scenarios, correspond to what we mean by fairness, um, or sorry, what we mean by privacy. In fairness, there's nothing like that. There's no, you know, single definition of fairness, that a technical definition of fairness that, you know, people widely agree on. And I think, in fact, we know that things are going to be more complicated than that. There really are different, you know, even when you get down to sort of the technical level, there are different kinds of fairness that we're going to need to tease apart and there will be trade-offs amongst them. So maybe a, a good way to start um, introducing how people think about this, though, is by talking about... Um, ProPublica and the Compass Recidivism Algorithm, which is sort of um, the, the very popular and good example in, in this area um, and, and gets to the heart of some of the issues. So for background, um, in many um, jurisdictions in the United States, uh, bail and parole decisions are informed in part by statistical models that attempt to predict whether a particular individual, if they are released on bail or parole, will for example, uh, go on to commit a violent crime within, you know, say, 18 months of being released in the in the setting of parole. And a compass was a commercial tool um, for doing this, you know, and it was used by Broward County, Florida, among among others. And so uh, ProPublica, which is this investigative news organization, had a really influential, um, you know, sort of let's say expose in which they gathered lots of data on their own using Freedom of Information Act requests. And what they discovered was that there was sort of measurable statistical bias in this algorithm against African-Americans in, in a way that, that I'll make precise because the story gets a little bit complicated and, and starts to hinge on exactly what that means. And so, you know, simplifying a little bit, this algorithm would predict whether people were high risk for committing a violent crime or low risk. Okay. Now, if you are someone who's being considered for parole, um, it is bad for you if it predicts that you're high risk, because that makes it less likely that you're going to be paroled. And so what ProPublica got was a data set of people who had actually been released. So we could, you know, uh, look at, at public record data and determine whether in fact they had been arrested for a violent crime within uh, you know, 18 months of, of release. And we could look at the mistakes the algorithm made. In particular, we could look at the people who did not go on to commit violent crime, but for whom the algorithm mistakenly flagged them as high risk. So, so in some sense, these are the 
people who are most harmed by the mistakes of the algorithm. They're sort of people that like we know didn't go on to commit violent crime, but the, the algorithm thought they would. So these are, these are called false positives. And what, what ProPublica found was that the false positive rate was much higher amongst African-Americans than, than amongst white people. So, so the, the, the algorithm was making mistakes in the harmful direction at a higher rate amongst the African-American population compared to the white population. And you know they correctly flagged this as a bad thing, right? If you are someone who's not gonna go on to commit a violent crime, your risk of being like harmed by the decision of the algorithm sort of depends on your race, which is, is not something we want. Now, North Point, the company that made this algorithm, um, wrote a response and they said, well, actually we've tested our algorithm for bias and it's unbiased. You guys are just looking at the wrong metric. And, and they said, um, you know, what we tested it for, again, simplifying a little bit, was positive predictive value. We want that the statistical signal, you know, the statistical meaning of the um, output of our algorithm should mean the same thing independently of the race of the person we're applying it to. So for example, 70% um, of people that we label high risk uh, go on to commit violent crimes. And that number 70%, which I'm making up by the way, uh, doesn't depend on the demographics of the, of the um, individual. So, you know, a white person that we say is high risk has a, you know, 70% chance on average of committing a, a crime, a, a black person we say is high risk has a 70% chance of committing a crime. And this is also something you, you really do want from a, from a um, statistical method like this, because remember these tools are not actually being used to autonomously make parole decisions. This is just one signal of many that is being given to a human judge who's actually ultimately making these decisions. And if you didn't have this property, if the statistical meaning of high risk was different for a black person than for a white person, um, you would be incentivizing the human judge to you know, correctly read those signals differently as a function of race and, and to make decisions explicitly as a function of race. And that's also something that, that we don't want. And, you know, there's sort of a flurry of um, academic work following this, because this was a really interesting example. And what was discovered shortly thereafter, and is sort of a simple fact in hindsight, is that, like, generically, except in very, um, contrived scenarios, it's actually impossible to simultaneously satisfy these two goals, right? Like it is impossible for any decision-making rule, whether algorithmic or human, to make decisions that simultaneously equalize false positive rates, false negative rates, and, and positive predictive value across populations. And, and the, you know, the reason I launched into this long uh, anecdote is because this is getting at both the value and the challenge of formalization. So, so, so there are, these are sort of two different ways in which you might think about fairness, reasonably so for a statistical instrument. Before you started thinking about them precisely, you might not even have realized that there was a, um, that there was sort of a, a trade-off here that you had to, that you have to pick and choose, not just between fairness and accuracy, but between kinds of fairness and having thought about these things formally, you know, you've brought, 
you've, you've shed light on a trade-off that has always existed because this is not a result about algorithms. It's a result about any kind of decision-making process. You know, it applies equally well to human judges. And, you know, like if there's a trade-off to be made, you should, I think, make it with your eyes open with as much information as possible rather than, you know, what happens if you if you decide on what to do without trying to quantify things, which is, you know, okay, you're going to make the trade-off somehow, but 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 now without without much information. Okay, so say we then pick um, a definition of fairness, right? A statistical definition of fairness. Um, how would we then go about modeling or mapping these trade-offs between accuracy and fairness? Yeah, so let's pick one of these. So suppose you say, you know, I really found ProPublica's um, article compelling and I do not want the algorithm to make mistakes in the harmful direction at a higher rate uh, in the African-American population compared to the white population. Okay, so, so now you've got um, a concrete goal. You, you want to come up with a classifier that has the same false positive rate um, on white people and black people. And, and now, you know, you can go about trying to solve that problem. You can say, okay, find me the most accurate classifier, say, that equalizes false positive rates between these two groups. And, you know, sort of tautologically, when you do that, you will find a less accurate classifier than if you didn't ask for this fairness constraint, right? Like what you were doing before is you were searching for the most accurate classifier overall, you know, period. What you're doing now is you're searching for the most accurate classifier from this smaller set, from this collection of classifiers that equalizes false positive rates. And so there's going to be some hit to accuracy. And, and what that is, is it depends on the data set. But, but now, you know, here's sort of a, a smooth set of trade-offs that you can consider and, and can help sort of inform, again, this policy decision, which is about how much you differently value fairness and accuracy in your particular um, application. You know, I can say, okay, I want the false positive rates to be exactly equal across these two groups. Or I can say, well, you know, I don't need them to be exactly equal. You know, it's okay for me if, if they differ by, you know, 1% or 2% or 5% or 10%. And, and the weaker I make this constraint, um, so first, you know, like in, in some sense, according to this metric, the less fair the classifier I get out is in the sense that it might now make mistakes in the harmful direction at twice the rate in one population over another. But the more accurate um, it can be as well, the sort of more closely it will approximate the accuracy of the original unconstrained model. And when you when you sort of trace out this set of trade-offs, you, you get um, what, what you can what an economist might describe as sort of the Pareto frontier of what is achievable. Okay, like any classifier you deploy, whether or not you you, you know are worried about drawing this Pareto frontier or not. Will live somewhere on it. It will, you know, have some accuracy level, and it will have some disparity of, you know, false positive rates. And I'm using disparity of false positive rates just as an example. I'm not claiming that's necessarily how you want to think about fairness. Um, and if it's not on the Pareto frontier, which it probably won't be if you weren't thinking about it explicitly, that means that it would have been possible to improve on both of these axes without. It, you know, simultaneously, basically. And, and so if you, if you really care about those things, you should have done that. On the other hand, if you have a classifier that is somewhere on the Pareto frontier, what that means is the only way to improve on this measure of unfairness is to give up something in accuracy. And the only way to improve on accuracy is to give up something on this measure of unfairness. And 
sort of the scientific problem is to, you know, map out the Pareto frontier and, and, you know, give you techniques for finding points on it. But, but once you have that, you've got a policy question, like a, a difficult and, and real policy question, which is, which really requires considering in, in different applications, um, how much you relatively value these two things that are, that are sort of fundamentally at odds with one another. Uh, and, you, you know, how to make that decision, that's not a question for computer scientists. And it's a hard question. It's a question that people will disagree on. But, you know, it's a question that's not made any easier by not, again, thinking about what the trade-offs are. And, and so um, in the book, you you address like privacy and fairness separately, um, kind of as independent goals. Um, you know, in practice, of course, they're all interrelated and there are other values as well. Um, I, was, I sort of wondered, you know, how we might go about like optimizing for multiple goals at the same time. Like, would this require a different approach? You know, obviously the particular like algorithms you might use are different, but I would say like the fundamental approach we suggest is sort of the same. And the, the basic approach is to, you know, step one, think carefully about what you want. You know, maybe you've got various goals, you know, accuracy, differential privacy, fairness, you might have more, but start by, um, you know, enumerating them and precisely enunciating them, right? Like it's not enough to say privacy and fairness. You have to specify sort of more precisely what you mean. And then, you know, look for algorithms that, um, that, that optimize according to this, to these goals and, and trade them off. And, and so you can do this, you know, like there are algorithms that will, subject to differential privacy, learn classifiers that, you know, optimize for accuracy while trying to make sure that false positive rate differentials are, are close between groups. In general, when you do this, you find that, um, you know, perhaps not surprisingly, the trade-offs are also multidimensional now. Um, but, you know, fundamentally, you know, there's no problem with, with sort of approaching a problem like this with, with multiple goals in mind. A very interesting chapter in the book um, discusses algorithmic game theory um, and the problems of cooperation when algorithms are deployed in situations where, you know, a large number of players are interacting and each player is uh, inclined to behave selfishly. And, and one of the examples you give is um, navigation apps like Google Maps um, or Waze. Um, how might these apps be designed to maximize cooperation and, and minimize selfish behavior, like in this case by drivers? Yeah, good question. So first of all, maybe it's sort of like a preface. As we said at the beginning, um, even restricting attention to things like fairness or privacy, these are really sort of socio-technical questions in the end. And, and as we've been discussing fairness so far, or privacy for that matter, it's really been sort of at the myopic level, you know, focusing at a, for, on a single statistical model. And, and that's a good way to sort of start studying these things because you have to start somewhere, but it's it's not the end, right? You want to get to a place where what you can understand is how, you know, tweaks to algorithms, which are the knobs you have available to you as a computer scientist, say, um, manifest in sort of changes in the larger socio-technical system and whether they, you know, are good changes or bad changes according to, you know, your favorite way of thinking about things. And game theory provides one uh, lens to which, through which to ask that question. It's sort of, it, you know, game theory aims to model lots of sort of independent decision makers, people, and ask how they will behave uh, in 
response to sort of changes in the rules of the game. You know, so if I tweak my app in certain ways, that can result in sort of um, non-obvious and counterintuitive changes in behavior when when we think about people behaving in the aggregate. And ultimately, you know, at the end of this research agenda, we'd like to be able to understand how algorithmic tweaks sort of change the world in the long run. And game theory is sort of one lens through which to ask that question. So in the in the book, we talk about you know navigation apps not because these are the most consequential example, but but because you know they're easy to understand. Everyone you know uses them. And the way we talk about it, you know, if you think about um, driving, you know, in your city, this is really um, a strategic game between you know millions of of players. In that, you know, the thing that you care about getting between point A and point B as, as quickly as possible um, depends not just on how you drive, but on how everybody else drives, because it's the choices of everybody else in aggregate that lead to congestion. And you can think about apps like uh, Google Way, Google Maps or Waze, they're both owned by Google now, as helping people play this game. And at the moment, they're sort of helping people play the game selfishly by, by doing what uh, a game theorist would call uh, finding a best response, right? They, they help you figure out what are current conditions on the road, given those current conditions, what is the route that you can take that will minimize your commute time? And what happens when everyone um, does this is you, you will get to some state that is called sort of a, a Nash equilibrium. It's a, a state where sort of everyone is um, doing a really good job of optimizing for themselves, so everyone might be simultaneously taking the fastest route given what everyone else is doing, but it's not necessarily um, the state that is sort of the best from a point, the point of view of social welfare. For example, it might be that there's lots of congestion when everyone is doing this, and so everybody's commute time is longer than it would be if people were coordinating in some better way. And so we talk about sort of various thought experiments. You know, you could imagine um, a version of Google Maps that, you know, just tries to do this global optimization. You know, if, if it knows exactly where everybody wants to go, then why doesn't it compute a sort of coordinated uh, set of routes for each of them to minimize average congestion, your average commute time? And we sort of note that, okay, that actually wouldn't be a, a good idea in that, you know, it would be good if people followed those suggestions, but they're likely not going to. If, 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 um, if the suggestions are not selfishly a good idea for each of the people, because you know, if I open up Google Maps and it tells me to take some longer route, and then I like open up some young upstart competitor, like maybe Yahoo Maps starts up again or MapQuest. I don't know how many of these still exist, but that one's willing to tell me what's the quickest route. Then I'm quickly gonna you know switch to a different platform. And, and so that doesn't mean you can't do anything, but it means you have to not ignore incentives. So, so you, you know, if you want people to follow your suggestions, you should still suggest things that are equilibrium of various sorts, such that such that everybody, you know, is is doing what's best for themselves. If they if they follow the directions of your app, you sort of need that just for stability. Um, but like. You can try to you can try to nudge people towards the good equilibria rather than the bad equilibria, and you could also imagine. And now we're sort of you know 
there's all sorts of implementation challenges you'd have to worry about. But you can imagine um, apps that would do more sophisticated things like suggesting in a correlated way uh, that people take different routes such that given the information they have, like the route that was suggested today, it is um, on average over, you know, maybe the randomness of Google Maps, uh, a good idea to follow that suggestion. This sort of can be formalized by what game theorists call a correlated equilibrium. And, and you know, the, the power you get by doing this is that there, there might be better outcomes that you can coordinate this way. So, so what do we need to do um, to create the incentives for companies particularly to adopt these solutions, whether it's for fairness or privacy or other values? Yeah, that's a good question. So, you know, whether it's fairness or privacy, you know, one thing that keeps coming up is that there are trade-offs and when those trade-offs manifest themselves with revenue, I think it's extremely hard to get companies to sort of um, adopt technologies like this without a substantial nudge of some sort. And, you know, that nudge can come in, I think, two different ways. So, so the most obvious is um, through, through regulation. I think regulations about things like privacy and fairness are, um, at this point, quite outdated, are, are not a good fit for the kinds of technologies that are actually being deployed, you know, like in, in credit, you know, typically it says, okay, there's certain attributes you're not allowed to use, you know, so if I'm considering you for a loan, I'm, I'm not allowed to consider your race or your gender, but, um, that does little to solve the problem in sort of a, a world in which, you know, I'm deciding your credit limit by, you know, running your entire credit history and maybe like web browsing history through like a, a neural network. Uh, so I think sort of thoughtful regulation can, you know, just kind of mandate that, that companies employ some of these fairness and privacy aiding technologies when, when sort of otherwise they wouldn't. But I think that's not the only way. Um, you know, regulation is good, but it's sort of slow and it's sticky. Uh, you know, there's a reason current regulation is, is sort of out of date. And the other thing, which I think is sort of already happening and starting to push companies in the right direction, although obviously there's a lot you know, further to go, is that as academics and journalists and activists start noticing and flagging the most egregious harms that are perpetuated by algorithms and bringing publicity to them. And, and this is something that's been happening a lot more in recent years. Um, companies face sort of serious reputational harm from, you know, having deployed algorithms say that are, that are, you know, found to exhibit racial bias. And, um, you know, I think if it can be made either through regulation or, um, just sort of public ignominy um, that issues of bias, say, and algorithmic decision-making are viewed with the same seriousness as security vulnerabilities are because they will lead to sort of quantifiable harm to the company if they are discovered. Well, that's what you need in order to get, you know, big companies to be willing to, to make some of these um, trade-offs, which will be, you know, painful for them when they, when they relate to things like revenue, but companies already spend huge amounts of money on, um, 
trying to make sure that they don't have security vulnerabilities because you know there are huge negative consequences to, to having them. If there are negative consequences to these kinds of antisocial behaviors that we see from algorithms, you know, companies will will respond and, and try to fix them. Aaron, it's been great chatting to you. Um, I really enjoyed the book and uh, thank you for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. That was Aaron Roth, author of The Ethical Algorithm, The Science of Socially Aware Algorithm Design. On the next episode of Technology and Prose, I'll be joined by Sushma Rahman to discuss her new book, The Coming Good Society, Why New Realities Demand New Rights. People often think about it as, you know, a bit of a luxury, you know, a lot of cultures you don't necessarily grow up thinking of a right to privacy. But really what this is, is, you know, a right to live in dignity without fear, without stigmatization, the ability to have freedom of movement, the freedom of expression. Thank you for listening and until next time.